Hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I am your host, Sean Needham, along with my producer, Lindsay. We are streaming live from the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy Studio today. And you do not want to miss this episode. Stay until the very end because we have Dr. and Senator Scott Jensen back on our show, and he is going to recommend who should get the COVID-19 vaccine. It's hot in the news right now. Um, there, You're seeing stuff all over. So uh, Dr. Uh, Jensen has done a lot of research on this, and he's uh, explained it a lot already, and he's going to explain it to our listeners and viewers today. So you do not want to miss. Stay tuned till the final episode or till the final minutes because that's when he's going to discuss and, and recommend who, who should get the vaccine. So um, Dr. Jensen, welcome back to our show. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And um, with that, I thank you for being back on. You you were our guest back in August, I believe, and it was just a wonderful episode. I, I so appreciate you um, taking the time out of your busy schedule, a senator and a doctor, to um, help educate our, our listeners and viewers. So let's just get started right to the meat and potatoes of the COVID-19 vaccine. Explain the COVID-19 vaccine. I've seen one of your videos where you've explained it, and will you ex- please explain that to our to our listeners and viewers? I'd be glad to. Essentially, this is an mRNA vaccine. This is a little different than what's been used before. Most vaccines are, if you will, live virus, like uh, measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox. Those are live virus vaccines where the vac- where the where the virus is compromised, so that it can't, if you will raise the kind of ruckus in a human body that normally might like to. So because it's it's sort of like it's got its hands tied behind its back and maybe a couple of its legs cut off. So it doesn't have the same kind of virulent capability. Our body learns to recognize it so that if we ever come across a virus that has all of its equipment, that we'd be able to fight it back. That's a live virus vaccine. It's called attenuated because we've attenuated or compromised it. Then the other kind that's very common is the, if you will, inactivated virus, where we'll inactivate it, we'll kill it. It's called a killed vaccine. And we had that with uh, the SOC uh, polio vaccine. And so that's another kind. And then there's another kind, like, if you will, the diphtheria tetanus kinds of vaccines, where we'll give tetanus vaccine will be, it'll be something that is dealing with a toxoid. So the toxic thing that comes with tetanus is what's compromised. So we've got a variety of different ways to treat this, but this is an mRNA vaccine. And what that means is we we sort of code and send in, in the vaccine, the code for the snippet or a, a portion of a spike protein on the COVID-19 virus. So what happens is the code gets into the cell. Now think of a cell as like an avocado. You've got the big pit, which is the nucleus. You've got the fruit that we would normally eat of the avocado. That's the cytoplasm. And then you've got that, that skin of an avocado. It's, it's, you could sort of think of it as a cell wall or a cell membrane. Uh, human cells don't have walls. They have memories, but it's the same diff. It's the thing that separates the inside from the outside. But if you think about of a cell like that, what happens is the mRNA vaccine gets into the cytoplasm or the fruit of the avocado. And in there, it does its magic, whereby it teaches some of the cytoplasmic machinery to make something that looks very much like a portion of the protein of the COVID-19 spike protein. And then once that snippet is made and gets out into the 
outside world into the circulation, then our immune system recognizes that and creates antibodies so that if we become exposed or infected with the COVID-19 virus for real, we will already have circulating antibodies in place ready to, if you will, attack it and in so doing, kill it. That's how the mRNA vaccine works. The problem is we've never successfully had an mRNA vaccine utilized in humans to do something like this. So this is cutting edge. The fact that the work takes place in the cytoplasm is reassuring to be sure, because we don't want that getting into the nucleus. But as you can imagine, this high tech kind of science can be frightening on multiple levels. Well, so expand on that. Why can it be frightening? First of all, you say that this is the first one of its kind that's been out on the market. So have we had other vaccines like this, but they weren't successful? And talk about why this could be frightening. Well, we've never used mRNA on a mass vaccination protocol. So people haven't been injected with it before. Research has been done, but we haven't been able to get the ball across the goal line. So this is the first time. That's one reason. Second, anytime you're talking about RNA and you're talking about a genomic code, DNA and RNA are very closely related other than one of the adenosine bases. Anytime you're talking about that, there's a fear. Could we potentially, could we potentially be doing something to our own DNA? And that's why I think the Department of Health and, if you will, the FDA has made every effort to make certain that people understand that the mRNA vaccine does not get into the nucleus where the DNA of human chromosomes resides. So I think that there's been a tremendous effort to try to reassure, but nevertheless, because this hasn't been done before, I think we have to keep our eyes wide open and realize that. And another reason is we don't know what this kind of mRNA vaccine could potentially mean for someone who's pregnant. And we don't know exactly how long its effects could last. So if one gets the vaccine when they're not pregnant, but within four to eight weeks thereafter becomes pregnant, is that an issue? And then lastly, anytime we're vaccinating children, we have to be extremely careful because children are oftentimes very much in the midst of having cellular division, they're growing, cells are dividing, mitosis is taking place. To, to vaccinate a child who's growing, particularly perhaps an adolescent who's growing rapidly, is dramatically different than vaccinating someone like me who is in his 60s and doesn't have nearly the kind of reliance on mitotic cellular activities. Right, right. Well, that's a, that's a great explanation. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Jensen. So what is, you know, uh, what is the effectiveness supposed to be of this vaccine? Well, again, the data varies. And I've seen multiple different um, numbers thrown at me. But it appears that they're telling us that it's greater than 90% effective. And yet I have seen other uh, data sources where it was potentially 70%. And then you're having to talk about the Pfizer vaccine and you talk about the Moderna vaccine. And then we have AstraZeneca and other companies involved as well. So I think that to specifically quote a data number, now I'll leave that up to Dr. Fauci and some of the other folks, but I think suffice it to say, the data was encouraging enough that the FDA approved it. But again, having said that, we've been learning little snippets along the way. And one of the things that's come out in the literature is that 
the vaccines may not necessarily prevent the disease. And we're not exactly certain what the vaccine will do in terms of decreasing mortality data. There have been some studies that have indicated that where the mRNA vaccine may shine is in reducing the severity of the disease, potentially reducing the duration of the disease. I think these are all questions that we will see better data responding to as we get more and more information. But again, we have to remember that Dr. Fauci said it is virtually impossible to have a vaccine created ready to go in less than 12 to 18 months. And here we are, we're at about 10 months. Right. So when one thinks of it from the perspective of what Dr. Fauci has said previously, I think we have to ask ourselves a question. Were there some shortcuts taken? Were there some steps that normally took this amount of time that were squeezed down to this amount of time? That would stand to reason. And if that's the case, does that potentially provide more questions, more concern that there could be unexpected consequences? Well, I read the FDA approvals paper, and um, one thing that I found very concerning is that it definitely, the vaccine definitely did not um, prove that it, that it decreased death at all. And here's one of the reasons why, because nobody in the vaccinated group or the um, placebo group, nobody died. In fact, out of 43,651 people in the Pfizer vaccine study, only 10 had severe illness. So 10, which is point out of that, which is 0.022% of the people got seriously ill. Five of them need hospitalization. Two of them needed, uh, were in ICU, no deaths. And five of those 10 people had comorbidities, mostly obesity and diabetes. So that being said, from what I read from this study, all it showed is that it decreased infection. And remember, Infection does not equal disease. And here's another question that I have, and I wanted you to verify this. From what I understand from this study, patients were able to self-administer their um, nasal swab for the COVID test themselves. They were able to self-administer, which I kind of question how that could lead to false negatives. Do you know anything about that? Well, there has been data that was introduced probably about, I'm going to guess, two to three months ago where the high nasal swab done by, uh, if you will, medical personnel compared to low nasal swab carried out by patients under supervision were comparable. So that in and of itself, I'm not certain that I would go deep into that in terms of a concern, I, because I think that question had been addressed two, three months ago. Okay. So what about the what about the numbers of people that were seriously sick? Ten people out of forty three thousand six hundred fifty one in the study. Um, we really it, it's hard, and even the FDA said this in their own paper. It's really hard to draw a conclusion with so little people actually having serious symptoms from the disease. It's hard to draw a conclusion that this vaccine really helped prevent um, serious illness. Can you expand on that? I probably would not be able to. I didn't read that specific report from the FDA. Certainly, when you have some 50,000 people being studied and you have 10 uh, people that you put the focus on, the potential for confounding variables to, if you will, corrupt 
the kind of conclusions you might be inclined to make is real. And I think that's, again, why we have that concern. Did we get a chance to really do all the homework that we would normally do in a vaccine process? Again, we're sort of feeling like we're up against the wall. So I think the vaccine has been put on the fast track. And I'm optimistic, I'm hopeful, but I don't think there's any question we're going to learn more as we see the first 100,000 people get vaccinated and then the first million and then the first 10 million. We have a long history of this in medicine where frequently the more data we get, oftentimes the more our eyes are opened. For sure. So on that spike protein that we were talking about, that the vaccine that our bodies are supposed to mount an immune response to. So as we know, coronavirus mutates very quickly. Um, that I know of, the latest I've heard is there's three three strains of this going around now. I don't remember the, the, the names of the strains. And there's one specifically of concern in Europe. So is that spike protein going to always be um, going to help us um, um, create immunity? Or does the virus um, mutate enough that we're going to need a new vaccine every three months? That's a real good question. It really is. And I think if we could just walk back to when we see that mRNA do its work in the cytoplasm and create strands of RNA that are similar, excuse me, strands of protein that are similar to those found on the spike protein of the actual uh, virus, when we expect our immune system to create antibodies, and those antibodies purportedly will bind with the spike proteins and, in a sense, neutralize it. That's what we're looking for. Now, if there's a mutation that changes the protein on the spike antigen, if you will, of the virus, certainly it would be a concern that the mutation might be enough to allow a certain deflection of the antibodies away from that spike protein on that viral particle. But to this point in time, everything I've read has indicated that that's more of a theoretical concern than one that's been demonstrated by any data yet. So even though we may have two or even three strains, I think there's a tremendous amount of optimism on the part of the vaccine manufacturers that their vaccine will continue to work against these strains and accomplish what we're hoping for. Now, do we know that? I don't think we do. Are we going to learn a lot in the next 30 days? I think we will. So I'm seeing reports that if you've had the virus, that you should still get the vaccine. Now, I've never seen any other infectious disease that we've recommended that before. So can you explain that theory? Well, I'd like to, but it confounds me as well. I remember reading, I think about three weeks ago, Dr. Fauci made some remark that President Trump should certainly get a vaccine. And I thought, well, why would you say that? I had COVID-19 in August and it was very mild. I thought I was having some seasonal allergy symptoms. And so I had my antibody level tested in mid-September and it was positive for IgG antibodies, which is what you'd expect. Then last week, I had mine checked again to ensure that I continued to demonstrate a robust level of antibodies because I want to give my plasma uh, to uh, some of these uh, companies so that they can use it for other patients that don't have the antibody. But 
So mine was positive in September. Mine is positive last week. Now, in that situation, I would sort of put my report right next to a person who's not had the disease but got the vaccine a month ago. What would you want that vaccinated person's report to look like? Well, you would want it to look like my report already does. You would want it to say that there are IgG antibodies. IgGs are a mature form of antibody, more so than the IgM antibody. And it's the IgG antibody that frequently gives us a long-standing immunity to a disease. So I've already got the report that we want vaccinated people to have. So if that's the case, why in the world? Right. I mean, we're basically being to vaccinate against people who have already had the disease. I was born before 1957. So if you look at the data when someone wants to apply for a job or demonstrate immunity, if you were born before 1957, you don't have to take a measles vaccine and you don't have to show measles immunity in regards to antibodies. You are assumed to have had the disease. This would be flipping everything upside down and saying, oh, well, we're going to ignore that portion of history. We're going to say that, yeah, we know that you've had measles, so therefore we're going to vaccinate you. It's confounding to me. So I really can't explain what that rationale is. I mean, I can understand that if they thought, if someone, a scientist thought that it would provide a boost that we're not getting, okay. But my first patient today was an 85-year-old guy who got his COVID-19 way last spring, got really sick, was on the edge for a while, has recovered completely. And now eight, nine months later, he still shows a level of IgG antibody that we want. So why we would tell him that he should be vaccinated when he's got the antibodies we want him to have confounds me. It doesn't make sense. And and here's my opinion on that. Um, you know, vaccines can do all you know, we can have all this great science and stuff with the spike protein and, and, and things to try to help our immune system mimic what the what we see in the virus. But that I know of, have we done any testing with the vaccine that it creates IgG antibodies to COVID-19? I got to think that the actual virus, if you've been exposed to it, is a better way to create immunity than a vaccine, than a vaccine with an mRNA, pro, uh, a spike protein. Well, I do believe that in the studies that were done by the uh, manufacturers and submitted to the FDA, that there was evidence that those that had been vaccinated did indeed create IgG antibodies. I think that data is evident, but I could be wrong on it, but I, I think that is. But to your point, I think you make a very good point. When we do an mRNA vaccine or potentially uh, a, a different kind of vaccine, we may not be exposing our immune system to the entire breath of what that virus presents. And when we when we actually get the disease, it's very possible that our immune system will create a response to more than the spike protein, to more than what we might even realize. We may end up having a multi-pronged attack by our immune system that would be far more robust than a singular target, which is sort of what we're doing with the mRNA. So again, I'm left a bit confounded. I'm thinking that to have the disease and recover and to have a persisting, robust level of serology, IgG antibodies, I would think that would be preferable than a, uh, than a vaccine. Makes sense to me. So after we get this vaccine, I hear, what's the story? You, you can get the vaccine, but you still have to wear a mask? 
I mean, great question, right? Well, I think it's a question that you may know the answer to already. I think that we're doing masks not because we have scientific data that tells us that if you wear a mask, you won't get the disease. What we have is we have physical data based on pore size of surgical and cotton masks and N95 masks that give us information that demonstrates that the pore size is far greater in size by approximately 50 times than a COVID-19 viral particle. So we have that information. Now, we do have some information that if you're wearing a surgical or cotton mask, that you may be able to reduce the viral load that might be transmitted from someone who is infectious. And it's possible from some of the data I've seen that we might get in a robust situation, 30 to 50% reduction in viral load transmission. But and I would submit to you, does the 50% that isn't blocked matter? Is that enough of a viral load that that person could still have infected others? And the data I see is that in vulnerable people, a 50% transmission of the viral load would probably be more than enough for a vulnerable person right. to become infected, even in a situation where masks are being worn. And I think that's why we saw the Danish study with approximately 2%, whether you're wearing masks or not wearing masks, 2% getting the disease over a 30-day period. So I think that the mask question isn't really one that's being determined by sheer science and physics. I think it's also something about this is an emotional community at large kind of response where can't we all do this together because it's something we can do. And then I think we have to get into the whole issue of, we have to start talking about the constitution. We have to start talking about things like, are we giving people the impression that masks are doing more than it is? And if we are, then are we causing a problem there? And another question that would come up is if we're walking around all day with a mask holding the bacteria and pathogens that we may be breathing out, are we in a sense walking around breathing through a Petri dish? I mean, those questions are legitimate questions, regardless of whether or not they offend your sensibilities. They still have the right to be asked. Well, so I'm assuming when it comes to lockdowns and having to self-quarantine or, you know, stay at home or not go to a restaurant, I'm assuming your answer is going to be kind of the same. After we get the vaccine, that's not going to stop us from having to not go, from, you know, the government locking down restaurants and and making us stay home. I'm assuming your, your answer is going to be the same there. I'm not exactly what the answer should look like based on, I'm not sure exactly what the question was formatted as, but I'll say this. I was the first Minnesota physician that I know who signed on to the Barrington Declaration. I think the Great Barrington Declaration was sound, reasonable thinking. I think the idea of watching us move closer and closer to herd immunity with people getting infected, demonstrating antibody immunity, potentially demonstrating cellular immunity, which is much more difficult to measure, and also demonstrating vaccinated status. As we move more and more and more to that threshold number we seek, whether it's 60, 70%, or as Dr. Fauci would have us believe now because he decided to adjust the numbers upward to potentially 85%. As we move to that, if we don't see policy changes, I think every American, regardless of which side of this divide you stand on, should be paying attention. Because at some point in time, we have got to ask ourselves, logically, what is the purpose of what we're doing here? So speaking of herd immunity, um, 
I mean, before COVID-19, you're right, herd immunity was 50 to 60% of the population. And um, now, yeah, I, I heard that Fauci, you know, made it 90%. Um, so what are you thinking, Dr. Jensen? When should we reach herd immunity now that a vaccine is out, now that lots of people have been exposed? I've heard June of 2021 should be herd immunity. So by then this should be over. Um, can you comment on that? Well, I would want to correct one thing that uh, perhaps I misunderstood that you said herd immunity isn't a constant number. So there is no herd immunity in terms of COVID-19. If you look at measles, herd immunity is thought to be somewhere around 90%. Mumps would be different. Initially, when COVID-19 came out and we started to look at all the factors that will determine where that herd immunity threshold lies, I think that initially we saw 60 60 to 70%. Then I think it's been moved up for a variety of reasons. I think you have to look at the the, the R-naught or the, the reproduction number as well as uh, transmissibility, aerosols, large particles, the whole thing. And I'll leave that up to uh, some of the infectious disease and epidemiology folks. But I think that we have every reason to be optimistic that by the spring of this coming 2021, between cellular immunity, humoral immunity, vaccinated persons, and those persons who have simply an innate intrinsic immunity to this disease, potentially related to exposure to previous coronaviruses, I think we have every reason to believe that we're going to be in a much more normal place. And I'm not going to do the Dr. Mike Osterholm thing and sell you what inning we're in in the baseball game. Um, <laughs> I think that for me, I'm telling my patients that in the next four months, I'm optimistic. But I, I certainly hope that our policymakers adjust some of the draconian measures that they have been making, because there is no data that shows that the lockdowns are accomplishing what our policymakers are telling us they will. No. Okay. So um, here's, a, here's a strong one. And I know you're, you believe in the constitution. So should the vaccine be mandated? No. That was, that was black and white. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I agree with you a hundred percent. I mean, we start going down that road and it's, and it gets really crazy when it comes to, uh, to just medicine in general, or our, our, of course, our liberties in general. Okay. So go ahead, Dr. Jensen. Let me just say this to you. If you have cancer, would you want the government to mandate that you have to take this chemotherapy regimen or this chemotherapy regimen? That would seem inhumane. You would say, absolutely not. And that's what we'd be doing by mandating a vaccine. We're not talking about giving a shot of penicillin to someone who's got strep throat. We're talking about giving someone a foreign, a foreign substance hoping to evoke an immunological response that will achieve our goal. That's exactly what we do with chemotherapy with cancer. That is true, but I will tell you the haters and the shamers um, and the people that will, will call people COVID deniers, they're going to say it's all about public health and that you're being selfish because if you get cancer, you can't expose somebody else to it. But COVID is different. That's what they would say. So what is your, what is your comeback to that, Dr. Jensen? Well, that's a great comeback on your part. Uh, well done. I was <laughs> know that you can't get cancer through mechanisms that we're not aware of. I'll grant you it's not contagious in the, in the manner that we would look at as a respiratory virus. Uh, but as we look at things like uh, cervical cancer and the human papillomavirus, and we start to look at what happens uh, through possible sexual transmission, we do have to be somewhat cautious in not presenting ourselves to know more than we do. 
Right. That's exactly right. Okay. So we're getting ready to wind up the show and everybody's been waiting for this question um, and, and your answer, of course. So Dr. Jensen, who should get the COVID-19 vaccine? I think that we should do exactly what the Department of Health has indicated. We should start with the healthcare workers that are on the front lines. I think we should offer it to them. I think we should then offer it to the people in the long-term care facilities. And from there, I think we expand into the next tier, which is going to be, if you will, uh, your vulnerable uh, seniors that have multiple underlying conditions that put them at risk, as well as expand it to additional healthcare workers that may not be seeing that may not be seeing COVID nineteen patients every day, but certainly ex- uh, do their work uh, under the cloud of possible exposure that isn't identified. So I think we do that, and then I think we move from there into your essential workers and things like that. I think the question for me is not who should get it as much as who should not get it. And for me, I would say I don't think kids should get it unless there's a compelling reason outside of what I've seen at this point in time. I don't think pregnant women should get it. I don't think that women that could get pregnant should get it. I think that the population under the age of 50 uh, are going to potentially have the least amount to gain from getting this vaccine, especially when we see data coming from the FDA that indicates that we don't really have the kind of robust demonstration that the vaccine will stop COVID-19 mortality in its tracks because we don't have that data. So to me, I think we have to look at the population that not only is vulnerable, but also data shows has the highest risk of being hospitalized and potentially subsequently succumb to this disease. And those are mostly patients over 70 and most of them even are over 80. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. So, um, well, thank you for your expertise today, Dr. Jensen. I appreciate you taking taking the time to to visit with us today. Is there any parting words you'd like people to know about the COVID vaccine or, or just this COVID um, thing in general? What would you like to, your parting words, last 30 seconds? I have told people that want choice for parents and for themselves regarding vaccines to not call themselves anti-vaxxers because that's denigrating. They are simply people that are pro-information and they want to be able to choose. I would agree with that. I, I would love it. I would say the same thing to people who are, if you will, being called conspiracy theorists. Don't accept that. That's not right. Conspiracy theorist is a manufactured moniker to target and, and throw harpoons at people. Bottom line is people who think, read, engage, and form theories are what we all do. And if someone doesn't like your theory, then they put the label in front, conspiracy theory. Don't buy it. If there's someone responsible for conspiracy theories, I would say it's the bureaucrats, it's the politicians, it's the ivory ivory tower physicians that have created it by breaking the trust, by not being transparent, by flipping what they say, by saying in March, April, and May, masks don't do a thing. And then coming out in July and August, making it sound like it's the best thing since sliced bread. The, The conspiracy theories have been created by the very people that we thought would lead us better. Wow. Yeah, that's a powerful statement. And I, and I just happen to agree with you very much so, Dr. Jensen. So if people have any questions for you, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Boy, I'm not that good. And they can always email me at um, my email with the Senate, but that's going away because I didn't run for re-election. Probably the best way to do is Facebook, go Senator Scott Jensen or just Scott Jensen, and then just Instagram me or Insta message me because I get those and I try to read through those. I can't do all the comments because there's tens of thousands of comments, but 
that would probably be the best way through that instant message. It's pretty easy to find you. All you got to do is Google you. You're a pretty popular guy, Dr. Jensen. <laughs> it's a path that I didn't choose. <laughs> well, I appreciate you being on our show today, and thank you very much. You've been listening to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Tune in Wednesday, this this time, not Thursday. Tune in Wednesday to see Dr. Hallie, Hallie Miller. She's going to um, talk to us about diabetes and how to con- control diabetes and get affordable insulin. If, if anybody has – it's a big hot topic about insulin being expensive, she's got some secrets to to uh, to teach us. So tune in uh, Wednesday, 8 to 9 a.m., Dr. Dr. Haley Miller. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks, Dr. Jensen. <laughs>